0: The best part? You can try Audible free for 30 days and get your first audiobook on them. It's a great way to experience storytelling while supporting this podcast. To get started, go to thenextreel.com slash audible or text the nextreel to 500500 500. Listen to incredible audiobooks and support the show today. That's thenextreel.com slash audible. I'm Pete Wright and I'm Andy Nelson. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community. Learn more about the show and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com.
1: So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and
0: we hope you enjoy the show. Jumpin' G,
1: Josifat. Daniels. Andy I I feel like I owe it to myself and to you to check in about my absolute obsession with Ian Fleming now.
0: I I love that you're obsessed with Ian Fleming. I think I'm that's just so cool.
1: Absolutely obsessed and I think from the from the last time we spoke uh, I had only finished uh Casino Royale and I was about three-quarters of the way through Live and Let Die. Live and Let Die, I finished that. It was uh it was great. And then I finished Moonraker, and that was the one that I was most nervous to to read. Uh, because my memory of the movie just doesn't hold up. I watched the trailer of the movie again and I remembered kind of what was going on in the film, and it just is doesn't really hold up. And now that I have finished Moonraker, I can tell you with great confidence that I am angry at the adaptation process of James Bond. The book is wildly, wildly better than the film. And I mean, it's not just, I can't even understate that a little bit. It's not just, oh, you know, it was kind of a sloppy day. It's a different movie. It is a stupid movie. And I am if I were alive at that point, I would have written a strongly worded letter to the producers.
0: Does it have Jaws uh, meeting that girl Bad, bad guy, girl. And Jaws they've... is a
1: is a fiction. Jaws is a cinema fiction. He's part of the Bond cinematic universe, as as I just made up. Uh, he's not in this movie. He's not in Moonraker. Wow. Yeah, yeah. You know what else happens? Spoiler: They don't go to space. Really? Yeah, yeah. Well, they don't go to space. They... It's a grounded film. It's about a. It's about a. Uh, it's it's a nuclear weapons thing, and it's great.
0: Interesting. I mean, they went to space because of Star Wars. That's, you know, they they wanted to find a way to kind of tap into the cultural zeitgeist, so... Well... They, they screwed it up, I guess.
1: It's so royally. Ah! Oh, it's so royally, and I'm worried. I'm now in the middle of uh, Diamonds Are Forever. I'm not in the middle of it. I finished, like, the first chapter. But let me just tell you, that one does open with the scorpions. So... Mm-hmm. Small win. I'm, I may be getting back on track. I don't know, but so far I am. I'm, I'm going to keep. Uh, I'm, I'm going to have to keep checking in because I am. I can tell you after now three and a little bit books. I'm hooked. I'm in it. Wow. Yeah. I'm going to ride this one out.
0: Well, good. I look forward to uh, hearing how they all turn out.
1: What else you got going on? You do anything good? I saw two movies this week.
0: Um, no. Other than the film board movie, I haven't really had a chance to do much of anything.
1: Well, that was the one. We did the Hail Caesar, and you were a real curmudgeon about that. <laughs> and then the second one I finally caught up on was uh, was uh, The Big Short.
0: Oh, yeah. What'd you think?
1: <sighs> I adored it, and I was so mad. I was <laughs> exactly. so— uh, It was that's so good.
0: It, that's what it does so well.
1: <laughs> I was furious. I mean, fuming. I couldn't get up. I couldn't, like, physically stand up at the end. I, like, watched the credits and was gripping the armrests. I was like, I hate these guys so much. Uh, yeah, but I, you know, I loved everything about it. That whole avant-garde bit of, um, you know, of using these kind of fourth-wall tools to explain an incredibly complex topic and make it dramatically interesting to me was was really powerful. I thought that was terrific.
0: Yeah, it works really well, and it's done in a way where it also is kind of pointing out the fact that our attention spans are too short to actually figure these things out unless a celebrity is like, <laughs> Here's Margot Robbie in it a is. bubble bath. <laughs> <laughs> and also, you know, it tells us, you know, this is something important and now you can probably forget about it. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> Cause I don't know what Margot Robbie was selling.
1: <laughs> that was, yeah, it was, it, it was a pretty powerful film. We also watched Spectre again, uh, over the weekend. And I think I, I'm telling you that has improved with age. Nice. Maybe it's because I'm on my Bond bender, uh, but it is it is much better even than I remembered it. It's not the worst of the Daniel Craig's, certainly.
0: Well, I, I definitely look forward to catching up with that one again sometime soon. Yeah. Because I I mean, I you know, I enjoyed it. I know um, it's gotten accused of being boring and just not kind of messi- messing too much with some of the history and stuff. But, you know... I I remember having a good time, so I'm curious to see that one again.
1: Did you uh, Did you see anything this uh, this week? Did you do anything good besides? The uh, I think you already told me. You said no.
0: Uh, no, I you know it's it's Girl Scout cookie season, and so I've been uh, when we have free time, I'm out door to door helping my daughter sell Girl Scout cookies.
1: This is my favorite time of year. Can I tell you what I did? It's so bad. I actually, uh, I I made sure that our neighborhood Girl Scout came to my door when my wife wasn't here. <laughs> so I could order, oh man, so I could just burn the barn down with cookies. I mean, I I went I went a little bit crazy. And then I told her, I said, you got to make sure you deliver it just to me, just to me. And I did that move with the eyes, like the two fingers in my eyes, two fingers in her eyes. You know that move? Oh yeah. I said, do we understand each other? To this Girl Scout. And I don't think she did because she ran away screaming to her mother. <laughs> <laughs> I kid. That's a joke.
0: Yeah. Terrible. Oh, You're those terrible. Thin mints. Thin mints. There's a frozen, new cookie this frozen year. Thin mints. Mm-hmm.
1: Are you are you are you happy with the new cookie? Have you
0: You know, I don't know what the new cookie is for you because they, they change in different markets. They do?
1: What's the yeah. new cookie for you?
0: The Savannah Smiles.
1: Okay, tell me about that one. They're what, what am I cookies? missing? Oh They're... we that's our we got that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay.
0: <sighs> those are those are my new favorite. And yeah, because I've never had them before; they're delish.
1: Do you get like as a as a family? Do you get uh, samples?
0: No. What we do get is boxes and boxes of cookies sitting <laughs> in our house all the time, saying, "Hey, eat me! I'm delicious cookie."
1: <laughs> <laughs> I can see you at like you know four hundred pounds, and you are yelling to your daughter, "Put another one down for me." <laughs> 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 Yeah, it's getting close to that point. That's why I got to keep walking it off. I go door to door. (laughs) That's right. Oh, good on you, man. Well, should we tell the people where we're from?
0: Yes, where are we from?
1: Is the next reel on RashPixel.fm, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that over there is Andy Nelson. Howdy, howdy, howdy. And we spoil movies tonight on the show, the second in our series on great films and their remakes, with our first remake of the bunch, the Outer Space Homage to High Noon, Peter Hyams' 1981 Outland. Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com, subscribe to the show on iTunes, or follow us on Twitter and Facebook at thenextreel. And if you've ever felt the urge to right great wrongs, thwart villains, and decompress some dudes real, real good while you're at it, well then you should head over to the NextReel's Instagram, hashtag PonyPrize, hashtag guessTheMovieChallenge.
0: And with that, let's head on over to Scotland and check in with Stephen Smart, who's busy mining titanium in the Scottish Highlands. Hey guys. Last week's movie was 70s Noir Night
1: Moves from 1975, directed by Arthur Penn and starring Gene Hackman, James Wood and Melanie Griffith. Congrats to Fegfee who guessed it on Image 3. You're entered once again into the
0: 2016 Pony Prize hat. As always, a new challenge starts Monday, so thanks guys and see you later. We've got some follow-up from the blot spot. Yes, he says, I like the semi-real-time aspect of High Noon, and I think they did their best to build tension. The real problem is they didn't have enough plot to fill the hour leading up to the confrontation, so the film dragged tremendously. The climax was okay, but didn't have the punch that I was expecting to close out the story. Gary Cooper gave a very bland performance, and I have to agree that I just see Lloyd Bridges as his silly airplane persona now. Don't even get me started on that song. Now that was so tedious. The idea of this film worked for me, but the execution did not. Your rank 103, my rank 182.
1: That was a really good reading, Andy. I think when you started saying tedious, you turned into a mean girl. <laughs> Is that what happened? That was so tedious. <laughs> <laughs> I think we agree with, uh, with old Ben Lott on this one. I think we do. I, I, it, I think we do. Yeah. And yet somehow we ended up uh, 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 pretty far away from him in the ranking.
0: Yeah, I I attribute that to my um, clinging to the need to still rank it as a classic, and maybe I I couldn't quite pull myself away from that.
1: Well, thank you for accepting the blame. That makes feel me feel better.
0: It's, it's all on me,
1: Andy. Let's do trailers.
0: So I found out about my uh, the trailer for or the f- the movie for the trailer that I'm going to talk about, which is called Creature Designers, the Frankenstein Complex. I found out about this uh, via a tweet by Joe Dante.
1: Joe who, Dante?
0: Yeah, who is uh, interviewed in this film. He is a a a director who has had a lot of creatures in his films. And he is interviewed in this documentary, along with other directors and uh, creature designers. This looks like a really fun documentary just kind of about the whole world of of creature effects and kind of that real world uh creature design and then it also looks like it kind of looks at the CG side of things. So you got you've got makeup effects, you've got robotic effects, you've got stop motion animation, CG, all of this sort of stuff used to tell the story and how these people come up with these things to do that this looks like a really interesting documentary the sort of thing that i just would just totally eat up it's uh premiering right now at the Berlinale ale uh, film festival in market which i believe is starting if it hasn't started already it's starting very soon and goes for about a week or two and it's going to be playing there and then hopefully it's going to be out in the rest of the world but um you know this is the sort of thing that as a young film fan, special effects were really kind of one of the first things I latched onto, to. Just watching monster movies and just special effects and Indiana Jones and you can see like the, the, the crazy clouds coming out of the sky and going down into the arc and just all that sort of stuff. I was so mesmerized by how they did all these effects. And the creatures just always blew me away. And having a whole movie kind of talking about these people behind... The designs of all this stuff it just thrills me i love watching these guys talk about the passion they have for this and where it came from
1: How i you think? i could not agree more i i really enjoyed this trailer and frankly i don't think i had ever actually seen some of these guys that right, i feel like right. i've been talking about for a long time some of them look like they may not live regularly in civilization <laughs> <laughs> that was really great. Uh I just I, there this is a a film that celebrates just straight up imagination and I uh, you know what it, I'm going to amend that it's straight up imagination and where it meets science and I think that's really fun. I mean inventing the mechanics and inventing the programming and inventing the 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 applications that actually drive their imagination, I think, is—it's like it's its a dream for a humanities major, you know? I mean, it <laughs> ends up being, I think, something really to celebrate, and I can't wait to see it.
0: You know, I will say the one person who I was really hoping that would pop up in here is Rob Bottin we talked about on The Thing and just the amazing stuff he did on there. And he also yeah. worked on Seven and Fight Club. He's worked on just some amazing projects. And then he kind of disappeared from the scene in 2002 after working on Mr. Deeds, of all things. And uh, it's just like, you know, I, I mean, I think he had done one episode of Game of Thrones recently, but it's like, I have no idea what the guy's up to anymore. And I would love to have kind of caught up with him or gotten a better sense of what he's doing now and, and hear some words from him. But regardless, even though Rob Bottin is not in it, there are a lot of fantastic people in here. So I am excited. Totally agree. When's it hit? Um, I don't know yet because it's still at the film market in Berlinale. And it's going to be one of those things, you know, see who uh, picks it up and where it gets out to. But if nothing else, you can go check out the trailer right now and then just uh, cross your fingers that you'll find a way to watch it sometime soon. Follow them on Facebook.
1: All right, then. We should do that. My trailer is uh, tonally uh, a little bit different
0: than yours. A little bit. Uh,
1: My trailer is um, Mike and Dave Need Wedding Dates.
0: (laughs) (laughs) OK, so um, this is this is this is going to fall into the realm of of uh, a sentence as a movie title like Zack and Mary make a porno. Yes, there's a, there should be a
1: series, I think, um, for another podcast. So this is uh, comes from director uh, Jake Zemansky, uh, writers Andrew J. Cohen and Brendan O'Brien uh, stars Anna Kendrick, uh, Zach Efron, Aubrey Plaza and Adam Devine and uh, Stephen Root. You got to throw him in there. There, oh, You yeah. know, There's a bunch. There are a bunch of people in this. But, but th- those are the big ones. And uh, it's the story of these two brothers who are apparently idiots. And they they're such idiots that their parents say they can't come to this to their sister's wedding unless they get dates that will tone them down. Right. That the the apparently they want the dates to be uh, ladies and they will come and, and tone them down. And the ladies, uh, Anna Kendrick and Aubrey Plaza, uh they don't tone them down. They end up being the, the they end up being the bros in the in this brotastic um movie, and they <laughs> end up being just horrible influences even on these guys who are already idiots. So I'm gonna tell you the truth. Uh I laughed at this um at this trailer, I really did. Uh, I really like Adam Devine. I think he's really funny on uh, um, on Modern Family, and uh, it, so I, I I was already predisposed to kind of like it. Of course, Anna Kendrick, Aubrey Plaza, uh, you know she. Hey, she did a Hal Hartley movie. I I I dig uh, Hal Hartley so much. It was it was guilt by association or fandom by association. So I laughed at it. But the reason I really wanted to talk about it was because. It seems like this is one of those movies that is, that is uh, you know, it, it's a, an infantile sort of film that, that is actually shooting for gender equality in a way that I think is really <laughs> funny, that it's making these women... Uh, the foil for really offensive things, and I think these and these guys are also behind uh, you know Neighbors and Neighbors Two, Sorority Rising. If you haven't seen the trailer for Sorority Rising, it's exactly the same thing. I mean, this is Selena Gomez leading a gang of you know thuggish offensive ladies in bikinis, and it's it there. There's a lot to you know if you're sitting in a theater with your mother, as I was. There's a lot to find offensive about it, but I'm not going to
0: lie to you, I laughed at that too. Hey, that trailer made me laugh more than Hail Caesar did.
1: <laughs> what do you think? Am I am I on on track here?
0: I I agree with you. I this is one of those I was like, oh, this is going to be just absolute <laughs> garbage. And I was just laughing. I th- I thought it looked really funny, and it may end up being a bad movie, but I guarantee that I will end up laughing at it.
1: I, I'm, I'm in favor of uh, of gender equality if it allows me to see dumb movies like this. Um, and, and so I say dumb with the greatest appreciation. Uh, yeah,
0: I, I can always look at Anna Kendrick and kind of go, if she's in it, I'm like, okay, I'm going to give that a little bit more of a benefit of the doubt because I feel like she picks projects not just... Uh, for like a check, I think that she kind of is looking for something a little more, and maybe that 's just me reading that into it her, but I feel like that's kind of what she's doing so so i give it I give it an extra vote for that
1: right and and I you know I look at zach Efron. i i don 't think i 've seen a single film that he has done since high school musical, and i 've seen about twenty minutes of that because of my kids so i haven 't seen anything but but um dirty grandpa intrigues me. It's got De Niro in it, and he looks good in the trailer. So I'm, you know, I'll probably see it.
0: Yeah, it, it looks like something that I'd watch late at night. I agree. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, yeah.
1: So uh, here's hoping he can pull that off. And uh, and you know, the dude's cut. And talk about aspirational. I need to go
0: work out. <laughs> I know. Yeah, that's. Do you remember
1: what it was like to be young?
0: Yep. <laughs> There was you, a should, day. you should
1: always just say no because that lets you off the hook. <laughs> I don't remember. Did, I just, did that make it sound more pathetic? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it it more pathetic? yeah, uh, yeah, uh, it Anyway, so my uh, my film hits. You, um,
0: you want to say yep? Yeah because if you say no, it sounds like you're so far away from having been young <laughs> that you can't even remember it anymore.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was yesterday. I gotta go work out. <laughs> well, this uh, my trailer hits July eighth. 2016 Excellent. It's a summer romp. Ah, oh, Andy. Your wife is one stupid lady. You want to go get drunk
0: in a mining town on the second moon of Jupiter. Something deadly is happening. see that this is just like every other mining town. I work these people hard, and I, I let them play hard. There's never much trouble. We're all professionals. I'm sure we are.
1: Outland. The ultimate enemy is still man. Outland! Oh, Andy, this may sound familiar. A marshal, personally compelled to face a deadly enemy, finds that his town refuses to help him again. Outland 1981, from direct writer-director Peter Hyams uh, stars Sean Connery, Francis Sternhagen, Peter Boyle, uh, James Sicking, Kika Markham, and Clark Peters, among other fantastic people. I had seen this movie before. I yield the floor before I give you any sense of my take on this because I want to hear what
0: you thought, Andy. Go. Well, and knowing that I had never seen this before. Yeah. Yeah. I I ended up liking this uh, and I really wasn't expecting to. Yeah, which you I, did. <laughs> no, I I expected to totally think this was just, just terrible 80s, uh, you know, just awful sci-fi. And... It had some issues, but on the whole, I actually really ended up enjoying this. And I think I actually enjoyed this more than High Noon.
1: Yes, you did. Which oh. I wasn't,
0: I also wasn't expecting, especially before rewatching High Noon. So <laughs>
1: I am, I am pumping my <laughs> fists in the air, Andy. That is such a win. Oh. I, yeah.
0: And I was really surprised. I, I, one of the things that most surprised me was actually how, little of a remake or just kind of a retelling of High Noon this is, it really only kicks in in like the last... Yeah,
1: the last 25 I,
0: minutes or something. Yeah, it's like the last act is yeah. kind of the High Noon portion of this. Thank which, God. Well, which, which actually I think benefits the story yeah. because you don't have that... Uh, entire film with like I mean High Noon's big problem in the second act was the plotting of the marshal going around trying to find people to help him we didn't have to worry about that we have the kind of the one obligatory scene where he's trying to find somebody to help him and it's not it doesn't work but up until then it's like there's kind of this detective stuff going on trying to figure this out you've got some great sci-fi stuff with some really fun effects I had a blast
1: I am so relieved (laughs) <laughs> I, I am really relieved. I deeply enjoyed uh, watching this movie again. It took me all the way back. It it felt, in some ways, I mean, there were some sequences that felt dated. There are some sequences that have I have a little bit of trouble with that don't that don't hold up quite as well as they did. But generally, I think this film offers a a much more interesting, uh, uh, much more interesting story than it is than its reputation would allow you to believe. And uh, I think Sean Connery is is actually well placed in this film. I don't find him uh, strangely miscast. I I think he is an an interesting marshal i love his team it has a, a very much an alien vibe to it like if you if you got rid of the the bad guys in the last act and you replace it with alien creatures and turn some lights off the the whole uh, home aloneing of the of the uh, space station uh, could really have been done in in an aliens type Film And I I thought that was really interesting. It's a it's a taut kind of little uh, gory uh, chase sequence. And I I thought it was just great. I really enjoyed it. Um, If there's anything that I had trouble with, it's it is uh, that uh, the reward in the third act at the end, the big fight at the very end. uh, I think the lesson is uh, fight scenes between two dudes in spacesuits are just not that interesting. (laughs) <laughs> uh, they, <laughs> you know what I mean? They just move a little bit too slowly, and uh, and so it's a little bit um, tough for me to 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 really find that a, a compelling fight at the end. But there were some sequences in here that are really taut. Steven Burkoff, uh, it, it plays a bit role in this film, and he is uh, j- center uh, to a terrific uh, standoff sequence that I think it just celebrates a, a really interesting muted view of the slums of space.
0: That's something that uh, I really appreciated. I mean, uh, Peter Hyams, who directed this, um, he has said how influential Ridley Scott uh, and what Ridley Scott did with Alien and Blade Runner, um, how they were for him and uh, just trying to develop this story. I mean, he wanted to make a Western at the time, and nobody would let him make a Western, because Westerns at the time were considered kind of dead, a dead genre. No one wanted to do them. No one would buy tickets to them. And then he realized, ah, the Western has moved to space, but now all of the frontier stories are in space. And so he's like, well, I'll just write a Western, except I'm going to have it in space. And that's exactly what he did. So he came up with this story of this mining colony, which is kind of like an old West town, and kind of created the story about this Marshall. And I and, and then of course pulling some of those high noon elements. And I think it works really well. And, and he said that he he said, I thought of the Dodge cities of the past and the oil rigs of the present, which I think uh is uh kind of paints it nicely, the way that the look has that very industrial feel which is again something he pulled from ridley scott everything is is really about uh, function not form and it just has this uh it creates this look for the moon of io on this uh, this little mining colony that they have there that really seems authentic i really felt the presence of the world here
1: i did too you know i one of the um, the uh, critics quoted on the Wikipedia pages Desmond Ryan from the Philadelphia Inquirer, and he calls it a brilliant sci fi Western. In many ways, Hyams has made a film that is more frightening than Alien because he surmises that space will change us very little, and the real monsters we are liable to encounter will be in the next spacesuit. I, I could not put that better. I think that uh, that's one of the things that he does so well is he sets it in an environment that I, I'm all, already have an affinity toward, uh, but he he eliminates the the movie monster element and makes it the human monster, and suddenly it's a movie that I think is much more terrifying because that could be anybody uh, that's out there trying to you know wandering around my the, the hallways with a shotgun. I mean, it could be anybody. And so I, I think it, uh, it ends up being really compelling.
0: Yeah, the um, I mean, it's it is a nice touch, you know. You've got these evil corporations in both the Alien franchise and in this film, and uh, it certainly seems uh, very prevalent today. So it's it's definitely something that that you know even back then filmmakers were latching on to how these corporations can kind of take over and pretty much uh, run things and rule uh, rule people and the government is kind of gone. Because I mean, this is really about corporate interests and how these corporate interests are really kind of overlooking this, this drug addiction that people have to basically get work done, um, more, get more work done. And um, they're kind of okay with people who freak out and kill themselves or kill others because hey as long as more work is getting done and our production's higher and we can sell more then that's that's great and so it's it's great seeing that story placed in this and i think that addition to the story of this high noon story it, it just gives so much more meat to that element of the story than it did in high noon where it's just you know frank just wants to get revenge
1: yeah, yeah, I no, absolutely. I think it gives it a, a much more interesting element. Peter Hyams uh is you know, I'm I'm looking at his uh directorial credits, you know, he'd come off of Capricorn 1 and Hanover Street which uh with H- Harrison Ford and I had not seen that. Um which I probably should. It looks like it's one that's that might be worth seeing. Uh, and then Into Outland, um but he's also done some films that I really enjoy, you know, from uh, he did 2010. I actually really liked that. I think I'm I may be in a minority.
0: I remember liking it, but um Tom Hanks, who is a huge 2001 fan. Um, I believe at one point he said, you know, Peter Hyams should be taken out and his legs should be broken for what he did with 2010.
1: That seems like such a, <laughs> a not a Tom Hanks comment.
0: I know. I, I think he must have been drinking before he said that on uh, Letterman, I believe. <laughs> wow. <laughs> uh,
1: I, I really uh, enjoyed Narrow Margin, uh, Gene Hackman and Ann Archer. And again, James Seeking. Uh, he's uh, He did I, End, End of Days, right, with Schwarzenegger.
0: And I I love Stay Tuned when that came out, and and Time Cop was a ton of fun. Yeah, Time so, I mean, Cop
1: was also a ton he, of fun.
0: He's he's kind of uh, he hasn't had much um, in the last decade or so. I think Sound of Thunder was such a big um, problematic film and such a big flop that um, I know he's—I think he's kind of struggled getting stuff out. I think the other stuff that he's ended up putting out may have all gone straight to video. I don't think Beyond Reasonable Doubt got a theatrical release. Well, but it's I too bad
1: uh, because, you know, I think he's—you know, maybe he's he's moving on. I don't know. But but I think he has kind of this, um, he, you know, the the high noon vibe sort of in his bones a little bit. And I think structurally, the the changes that he made to the— to the tone of High Noon and to the structure of High Noon really uh, work very well. And he added the story that we felt was missing uh, in in the original uh, and and made it more of a story about that uh, than just waiting. And I think that ends up being structurally in terms of the script. I thought it was very natural. I think it, you know, there was none none of the dialogue felt very strange. And I think this gets back to, I can't remember who said it. I'm almost sure you brought this quote up. Uh, that the, um, the you know the the trick to doing was it Asimov or the trick to doing good sci-fi or believable sci-fi is taking a a believable or like a normal everyday setting and solution and changing one thing right well that's kind of what this feels like right it doesn't take long for you to feel like you're you're in the space station that the space station could be anywhere. It's not until the third act that we really realize the the impact of their location. They could be underwater, a la the abyss. They could be, I mean, the setting in those halls. They could be anywhere—a military base, whatever. Um, it's the it ends up being the story I think that drives it forward: the search for these drugs and the the fantastic battle between uh, battle of wills between Peter Boyle and Sean Connery
0: yeah they uh, they work really well and it's a it's cast well i think that he brought some great people onto this um i think peter boyle has a strong presence for somebody who's kind of running a mine you know on a on a on a moon like he just he seemed to fit that role really well even though you don't really see him doing much in the way of leading but just just his presence just, I, I don't know, I seemed to feel it, whether it was like the way that he was talking to uh, Connery in the meeting or just all the scenes in his office, like the golf stuff, which I, there's something about that that just seemed so right for that particular character.
1: Absolutely right. I, I thought he nailed it. And he's every time I watch it, I'm I'm surprised anew that this is Peter Boyle because I, I think about him as, you know, Frankenstein's monster. I think about him <laughs> as kind of the comedian. And... Um, I think he just, he really, he really nails the mob boss uh, role. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about, first of all, before we get more into the cast, let's talk about how this thing got made, the the production of it. You already said that it was a Western that was never going to get made. How did, how did it end up getting on screen?
0: This is a movie when, when, um, so like I had said, Hyams had written this script uh kind of his western in space and and he was getting it out there and he found some producers i believe it was uh richard roth uh richard a roth that he was talking to and um they uh everybody was a, a kind of Having a difficult time with the title because the working title was Io, which is the name of the moon out on uh, from Jupiter on which this, uh, this mining colony uh, resides. And uh, they said, look, you got to change the title. Nobody it, – it looks like the number 10 is on the front of the script. No one knows what it is. And, and Haim's just like, no, 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 no. Everybody's going to know that this says Io. And so he's like, come on, oh, we'll do a poll. And so they just walked out onto the street and they just asked, like, I don't know how many random people, like 10 random people or whatever. What does this say? And everybody said 10. <laughs> <laughs> and so so Hyams is like, uh, okay, I guess you got a point. <laughs> So they brainstormed, and I believe I think it was Roth who came up with the actual title Outland, which I, I like. I think it's a nice title. It uh, it has a vibe that puts it in kind of a place and kind of a, a mental space. So I think the title works really well. And then uh, so these guys then uh, went to the Lad Company to get uh, get the film made, and the Lad Company was a company that Alan Ladd Jr. started. I believe, um, you know, he was a son of Alan Ladd and, uh, uh, you know, kind of a, a big guy in the, in the film industry. And um, he was actually somebody who, I think, when he was working at Fox, actually wanted to get Star Wars made. And uh, so he's kind of big in kind of that sort of thing. And I... I can't remember exactly what happened with him, but somehow um, he ended up leaving Fox because um, I think he went from president there and then Star Wars, Alien, all that stuff was there. He left to form the Lad Company and. I, I'm not quite sure what the story is. I can't. I can't recall why he didn't stay with Fox with the Lad Company, but they actually ended up going over to uh, Warner Brothers and kind of working with Warner Brothers. They kind of had this deal there, and starting in 1980, they started cranking out movies with Warner Brothers. And under Warner Brothers, the Ladd Company became a uh, kind of kind of. Big, And it certainly is a logo that I really recognize, mostly because of Blade Runner. That logo of that tree that kind of grows in scan lines as you watch it. um, Really kind of, uh, I always remember that. But I mean, um, aside from Outland, they did Body Heat, they did Chariots of Fire, um, Night Shift, um, The Right Stuff, And so uh, then, of course, they start getting into stuff like Police Academy, and they also did Once Upon a Time in America. So they did a lot of great stuff. And then um, because of some problems that they ended up having and some films that just didn't make their money, they ended up having to close their deal with Warner Brothers. And I believe they actually are still around doing stuff, kind of doing co-productions, like they uh, co-produced to get Braveheart out and most recently Gone Baby Gone, actually. So they're still around, um, but... uh, There's nothing like the stretch they had with Warner Brothers in the early 80s. So I don't know. I I mean, I kind of went on about the Ladd Company. But I think that they were just a great company back then. And I love seeing companies like that that uh, really kind of push the limits. And Alan Ladd Jr. actually came to set. I believe it was the day that they were, you know, the guy who goes uh, kind of like um very peacefully walks into the, the elevator. Yeah. Without yeah. it without a spacesuit on and he goes all the way down and then he come then when they get it back up and they open it, his his body had decompressed and, and he'd basically exploded. Um Alan Ladd Jr. looked at it and said, No, 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 you need more gore. You really need to kind of amp it up a little bit <laughs> and really wanted them to make sure that it, it looked like a guy had exploded. And so I don't know. Peter Hyam says that uh, working with the Ladd company was one of just the the most dreamy ways that you can put a movie together because these were people who really respected film and really wanted to make good stuff and let the creative team really be creative. So I I think that's just an amazing uh, amazing thing to hear.
1: Well, I think it's really cool and I think, you know, given that you've already introduced the uh um you know, the exploding the exploding elevator boy, uh, <laughs> I think we should we should transition into the visual effects because uh, it, the visual effects are, I, I don't think people talk enough about how cool the effects are in this film. They look ridiculously dated, I think, in some cases, but in some cases, they really hold up.
0: You know, I think they're really fun, and it really surprised me, because I, I mean, it happens so quickly when you start the movie, but when you get kind of an exploding head, I was like, wow, I wasn't expecting that. That kind of perked me up a little bit.
1: This was the era of exploding heads. <laughs> I think, right? I mean, we had just come out of, of Dawn of the Dead and uh, Scanners also nineteen eighty one, which is really an exploding head film. And uh and and here we are in Outland, which not only gives us the exploding head, but the decompression. Now when people normally think of this effect, they think of Total Recall and uh poor uh Quaid uh oh, yes. you know getting getting his eyes sucked out. And and I will say in total recall, they definitely moved the effect forward. Because the eyes were then on stalks, you know, and that was, (laughs) they did the full snail and uh, so that was pretty gruesome <laughs> but you see that effect in this film and they had this this wonderful um essentially a balloon mask uh that had the different components that would inflate and move in different uh, at different times as they inflated this head and then the uh the propellant explodes the the blood and gore out uh into the mask into the elevator it's it's really uh it, it was really yeah, i, I I remember the first time I saw this, I thought, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. It it was just really kind of fun to see. And like I was saying um, about uh, visual effects earlier, it's just it's thrilling to watch that sort of stuff happen on screen. And yes, it does look dated now, but... It just there's this visceral presence of it that just makes it uh, makes it really kind of feel like it's just a part of the film and part of the story and i I really just dug it.
1: so I couldn't find a, a film that did decompression uh, exploding heads in space before this one. but I think if you think Total Recall was wholly original, you need to see outland because they do it more, and the heads actually full on explode. Oh yeah, totally. Pretty worth quickly
0: it. too. It's, yeah, it's yeah. You know, you a, don't have a lot of time. Not, not a slow process. <laughs>
1: Move it forward, people.
0: Yeah, I don't We're think any schedule. heads exploded in sunshine. They, uh, they really no. didn't go for the exploding heads there.
1: They, but in sunshine, wait, they they lit on fire.
0: No, but there's the one guy who tries to leap across and and uh, he misses and he ends up just you see him just basically freeze. He yeah, doesn't he decompress. Freezes. He just right. freezes. Right
1: it turns out as uh, as you may know i went into a little bit of a rat hole on this whole thing and i'm going to post a link uh to a a fantastically disgusting um uh gizmodo article where they they actually wrote up what really happens when you are pumped pumped out of an airlock in space but i i will just say uh that um i'm going to read this passage At this point, you're not dead dead. You're just mostly dead. Your brain is still functional and your heart is still going. You can still be revived, surprisingly, with minimal permanent injury if you're immediately returned to an atmosphere. However, this savior window lasts 90 seconds. After that, your blood pressure drops low enough that it does begin to boil, which damages your heart and nixes any chance of resuscitation. It is so... This whole article is so bad it goes through the the every sort of second uh, as your body begins to adjust to space wow yeah i'm going to i'm going to be sleeping with this on the mind i don't think i'm going to be able to shake it
0: another reason <laughs> that i probably just won't ever go to space
1: yeah but definitely go to gizmodo in the show notes and check this out because it's really awful um the other thing that was that was i think um uh, really highlighted showcased in Outland is uh Introvision. What is Introvision?
0: Yeah, I I had uh I mean obviously I've seen Introvision before without realizing it and uh it's it's just There's this different uh, ways of doing sort of model work. And IntroVision, just reading from Wikipedia, was a variation on a front projection process that allowed filmmakers to view a finished composite of live action and plate photography through the camera's viewfinder on set and in real time. During its heyday, starting with this movie, IntroVision enjoyed the novelty of visual effect compositing in camera, thus eliminating the, the need to wait for photochemical compositing. So basically... Filmmakers could build models and have all of this stuff on set, and they could also do front projection, and they could have all this stuff playing together, and they could watch it, and they could actually film it all happening. And this is really kind of where it, uh, where it got its roots. But, I mean, geez, it was used all the way into The Fugitive when in the big train crash sequence. So it's a, it's a, um, a, I think that CG may have kind of killed the need for it, but I think up through that point, this was a very effective tool.
1: It is a, a very re- reliable, I think, uh, you know, precursor to the virtual camera, right? I mean, this is this uh, we talk about the. The, sort of the how, how fantastic it is to be able to have these 3D sets and virtual cameras that directors can, you know, adjust in real time. But what this lets you do is that that real-time compositing is fantastic. And so when you read about how this thing was produced, they started all the model work, you know, two months before uh, they started the actors. So the the models were, were ready to shoot uh, by the time the actors got on set. It seems like a really efficient way to, to to do this at the time uh so we'll put a little video in the show notes there's a fun little video it's very short it's about three minutes on the effects uh, of outland and and uh, it's it's worth checking out very cool very very cool so cinematography uh, achieving that uh, uh that gritty uh space western look was steven goldblatt
0: I think they capture a really great look here. Hyams typically likes to shoot his own stuff, um, but I think this may have been early enough in his career where he was still having other people do it. I'm not quite sure why he had Stephen Goldblatt do it, but I think that Goldblatt um, does a great job here. Um, a lot of shadows, a lot of dark. I know Hyams really likes to kind of keep things dark and... Um, he's one of those people who, you know, if if a character's using a flashlight and the whole room and the audience can see the whole room, he's like, "Well, why is that person have a flashlight then if we can see everything?" If somebody's using a flashlight, he says, "You got to have a dark room that you can't see anything except for what the flashlight is shining on." I think that's really smart. And I think that working with Goldblatt to achieve that, um, he does that. And also, I think he um between the two of them, they have a very good sense of space. And in a widescreen frame like this film, I think they do a great job with the wide shots and a great job with the, the close-ups, just finding the right way to compose all of the shots.
1: I'm just going to say this, Stephen Goldblatt. Uh, I, I think he had, he is a, an incredibly versatile DP, right? He went from Outland, which was early in his career, I think it was like his sixth or seventh film, uh, to... Um, uh, Things like young Sherlock Holmes, Lethal Weapon, Lethal Weapon 2, our favorite Joe versus the Volcano, uh, which, you know, gives you a chance to do those kind of comic uh, sets to the Prince of Tides, uh, which showcases just gorgeous, um, uh, like, beach scenes, um, you know, at the lake or at the water. You know, it's East Coast down by the Carolinas or something. Anyway, I'd like to pretend I'd never saw it, but it was beautifully shot. (laughs) Uh, to the legal thrillers, right? Pelican Brief, and and then of course, uh, you know, Batman Forever and Batman and Robin. So you know,
0: yeah, he's all over the place. He's and all he's still
1: over the place. Yeah, still working at uh, The Intern, his most recent, but of uh, the Oscar winner, The Help. He uh, he was DP on The Help in 2011. So he's he's all over the place, uh, and I think it's it's really fun to see just how capable a, a DP was, you know, in his very very early days. He's just terrific.
0: Absolutely.
1: Uh we've talked about how much we love the the look of the thing. Uh production design by Philip Harrison. Any comments on the any additional comments on the design?
0: No, I just I think that it was really solid. I love the models and like I said earlier, the uh decision, I guess really, between Hyams and then also Harrison to kind of create this this kind of rough oil rig sort of environment for this mine. I really just enjoy it from the way that the, the all the doors are almost like it makes you feel like you're on a submarine because you've got those giant hatches that they have to kind of it's I I'm expecting the little spinning wheels that they have to pull to kind of get in and out of each of the doors. I it just it works so well and the way that they blend the model work to the real stuff. I mean I, there's a shot really early on in the film where you see from just really far away, you see this mine and then you see this door open up and you see these figures getting out like getting ready for work and then you kind of follow them and you kind of track back across the model and then and you see kind of the whole expanse of this this frame that they have to do the mining on and then you keep pulling back and then all of a sudden you have actors right there and you have this scene of these guys doing the mining the way that they design all that, and just the sense of space. And I will say as far as one of the... Set pieces that actually I think was one of my favorites that uh, I give uh, kudos to Harrison for putting together is kind of the chase through the living quarters, the big chase scene that we have um, midway through the film where uh, where Connery is after the uh, the drug dealer, and you're going uh, you're going through these uh, these narrow little passageways upstairs, downstairs, like all over the place, and then it ends in the kitchen where you've got this this last fight, and uh, I, you know. I thought that was just so well constructed as a um, as a set. I really enjoyed the sense of space there, and both to Harrison's and uh, really everybody's credit, I really had a sense of where I was. I never felt lost.
1: Absolutely agree, and I think that's one of the best foot chases like to this day. It was just a great use of space and and uh, every dimension, uh, and being able to shoot it is just. Just great, which leads us I think to to editing. I mean, I think this is really tautly edited, and it's fantastic that we only just talked about uh Stuart Baird uh very recently,
0: yeah, he did uh, Casino Royale, so it was great looking at this as something another film with some uh, some good action sequences that he had done long before he got to Casino Royale in 2006 i think that uh, baird just has a really solid sense of how to tell a story efficiently this film had some slow paced stuff and i got to admit when this film started and it 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 was kind of just a lot of slow text a lot of expository. There's a lot of text. Yeah, expository descriptive text kind of explaining things to me. I was like, oh Lord, this is another Star Trek the motion picture. Which <laughs> I think is one of the most difficult films to watch because the pacing is so so slow. And I was really nervous at first. And then the movie starts. And I've got to say, despite it having some some nice slow bits. Those are, those are actually paced appropriately in the film, and the film actually moves by at a clip that I really uh, thought was a very fresh, modern clip.
1: I, I really agree, and I, I think you know, you can see it when you parallel the, the chase we were just talking about um, through the, the living quarters into the kitchen with the parkour chase in Casino Royale. I mean, you look at those things side by side and look at how the the action itself is constructed and even though Outland gives you this incredibly claustrophobic um, kind of interior and Casino Royale's parkour chase is so expansive and big, the way the shots are are constructed, the the pacing of the run is is very similar. I think they you can really see the sort of uh, cinematic DNA um, of of Outland, even in in something like uh, that Bond.
0: So it's good. funny. I, I hadn't actually uh, thought of comparing those two sequences, but that's actually a really a really good comparison. The parkour sequence and this sequence, the way that there's ups and downs and just in and out and through things. I mean, that actually is a really apt uh, way. It almost makes me think that maybe Martin Campbell and his team looked at this yeah. sequence a little bit, and you know, it's uh, it's interesting.
1: It really. That's that, That's what I thought too. Yeah. Let's talk about Mega Sound. Mega
0: Sound—that <laughs> is just a name that was destined to die. <laughs> yeah, it's too bad. Yeah, this was a sound system that uh, Warner Brothers actually created back in the early '80s, and it was it provided extra deep bass enhancement to uh, to uh, movies when they were released. I don't know how many mo- how many theaters ended up getting equipped with mega sound <laughs> but um I, I wonder if it's the same
1: that... number as uh, feel around
0: <laughs> feel around <laughs> sound. <laughs> Yeah, it's, um, let's see, theaters equipped for Megasound had an additional battery of speakers consisting of subs and horns. Usually all were placed on the stage behind the screen. This system also came along with extra power amps and specialized processing equipment. Megasound selected soundtrack events with lots of low-frequency content. Thuds, crashes, explosions, etc. were directed to these speakers at very high volume, creating a visceral effect intended to thrill the audience. Megasound has been best remembered for its infrasonic rumble capability. So.
1: Oh, I want to get me some of that.
0: Yeah, I guess uh, it, interestingly, it was allegedly tested on select audiences using the 1979 re-release of The Exorcist. Oh, that would have been creepy. That would have been really interesting to see. But uh, at least according to Wikipedia, it was only ever used on four films, Altered States in 1980.
1: Oh, I love that movie.
0: It, that movie is a trip and it, it would be interesting to see it in mega sound and then three movies in 1981 outland superman 2 and wolfen and that was it wow that's yeah, so I, funny
1: i mean you you look at it and, and you think about mega sound and then you compare it to something like atmos another right. dolby thing and uh i you you know i wonder i wonder how if it's if it's one of those things it's going to catch really catch
0: well yeah right exactly like uh how i mean there certainly have been more Atmos films than this and i think more theaters have subscribed to it but um yeah it does make you wonder like with all the different constant changes that they have you know what is the next thing to uh succeed what's the next thing to kind of just fade away yeah so Fascinating. i will say the sound mix on the movie when i was watching it was pretty impressive it's pretty good Yes, it, is. Yes, uh, it is
1: for what it's worth it was shot in pinewood um uh, you know just like every big
0: british space film <laughs> that's right <laughs> you know it's funny peter hyams um somebody um he commented that somebody on imdb said that uh, he's a dp director who loves natural lighting. And I guess he actually responded to the person on IMDb and said, you know, if if you're talking about natural lighting and you mean by by having control of the lights, yeah, then yes. But uh, I like to shoot on stages. He, he only likes stage work because he has complete control of the look of what he's trying to achieve on the film. And uh, so, you know, creating natural light may be. But certainly not filming in natural light
1: um, it, but it's interesting because that you know i well i, I don't think I could uh, uh, make much of a comment about nat- stage lighting versus natural lighting because obviously this film is so artificial in terms of light, but the use of light and the way they create light and dark contrast I think was really good one of the things i you know a couple of the highlight sequences the uh, when you talk about the the chase through the through the uh, the third act, right, That when he's outside and you've got the the you know the miscreants running through the halls. I, I thought that was really interesting because mostly it's really bright, right? They're in those giant tunnels and it's all white and everything's white. Then they go into the greenhouse and you get these high contrast red and black and green and black uh, you know panels, uh, the plates that I think are are really great contrast to what we had just seen. And I think it makes for a, a great visually interesting uh, chase uh, as a result.
0: Well, and then going from that to the exterior where you've got the final fight.
1: Yeah, right. The final fight on the grid.
0: Yeah. Uh, no, I, I. it's got a great look all the way through. So yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah. All right. Well, let's talk about our favorites uh, in the cast. We've already talked a bit about Sean Connery.
0: This, uh, you know... <sighs> As much as I enjoy him in Untouchables, I vastly enjoyed him more here. There's something about him kind of as the lead where he's carrying the story that just, I guess I just really end up connecting with more. And sure, he won an Oscar for that one, but there's just, he really fit this world. And I loved him as that kind of high noon marshal, who's, uh, you know, kind of stuck by himself having to figure all this stuff out. And I love those moments where he's, you know, using his little spy cameras and he sees, he sees, uh, you know, um, James Sicking's character uh, having a meeting with Peter Boyle and kind of realizing how alone he is because his own team of people are all kind of working for the man. I, I, I love that kind of sense. And you've got that, you know, his, his wife forsakes him. And you've got that scene early on and just like there's some great moments there. And man, that monologue that he has when he's sitting in the, uh, I guess, the futuristic racquetball court with Francis Sternhagen. What a great moment he had right there.
1: Yeah, one of, my, one of the best and visually interesting, too. Again, super bright. And, and I love that incredibly wide shot in that racquetball court where it's just I mean, there's it's. Just, Perfect, no distortion, no nothing with them as far apart as they could be, having such a great intimate conversation absolutely. uh I thought he was great he was he was just what I was looking for. He had been acting since nineteen fifty seven uh so by the time he was in this movie, I mean, he did this, and then right after time bandits, King Ag- Agamemnon and the fireman, and uh I remember thinking, who's that old guy? you know what he acts, <laughs> he's still going he's he's <laughs> That's amazing, that guy. Yes, he is, yes. Uh, anyhow, so Sean Connery, terrific uh, uh, Marshall.
0: And he's a great, uh, just I mean, going to him, the character, and uh, also to the script for a moment, I, I think that it's really strong that you don't have to have a big like knockdown, drag-out brawl with Peter Boyle. At the end of this film, I Mm -hmm. thought that showed some great restraint from Hyams that you know he dealt with the the uh, the problem people that Boyle had brought, but then the confrontation with Boyle was him just knocking him out, and then and then he leaves. And you you, know, okay, did you like that? I loved it. Okay, I thought I thought that was great because then it's because as as a as an audience member, I knew okay. we had that conversation earlier where Boyle was talking to the guys to bring them here. And, and the guys, when he tells them that they're here to kill, kill the marshal, they're like, oh, boy, you know, if, if this fails, the next time that people are coming down, it's going to be for you. So you pretty much know that, oh, well, now it's his turn. You know, so I, I really enjoyed that. So
1: I, I, this is the first time I started thinking about this, but what would it have been like had, had uh, the marshal just arrested him? Right, the the punch, it, while it was momentarily gratifying, it seemed a bit out of character for me. And I I think having him, um, you know, come up and just there was he was not defending himself. He was not uh, it, this this whole sort of revenge punch seemed like strikingly eighties. Um, and and may of course it was made in the eighties, seventies, eighties, so that's that's appropriate. But it just seems like it was it was a little bit too much machismo for the character that we have gotten to know
0: i can see that i can i can definitely see that i guess in my head it kind of fit a little bit with the uh the high noon aspect of it where he kind of takes care of the miscreants and even though he doesn't arrest peter boyle's character he has has kind of you know i mean he's been kind of eavesdropping in all these conversations so he knew that that person had said that to Peter Boyle's character that yeah. if if these guys failed in killing uh, Sean Connery's character that uh, they would uh, come and get him so I for me I think that it was uh, it was a great way to kind of resolve it because we also knew that that was him throwing his tin star in the dirt you know. I mean, as soon as we're he's done with that, we see him writing a letter to his wife saying, "I'll be there. Save that ticket for me." Yeah,
1: yeah, and packing his bag. I I guess uh, the the reason it it falls a little bit deaf on me that final sequence is just because we've had such we've had two sequences by now of of Conry and Boyle together, uh, trading barbs, and so we know to date their experience together is based on words. And how and and who's going to be sh- the the sort of sharpest wit, sharpest tongue, and so re- resolving their relationship with a punch is is a bit too um, brotastic for me.
0: I'm going to give you points on that one. I think that's pretty pretty good point there. I feel like I,
1: that's maybe my second point in the show tonight. <laughs> <laughs> You've That's got like you all consistently have. I mean, you've got probably fifteen. But I'm just saying, as long as we're keeping score, I appreciate it. I'm going to take my points. There you go. All right. There you go. Frances Sternhagen. Wow. <laughs> she's so good. She's Man. so good. She's this is this is she's just brassy. She is smart and mean and self deprecating, and she is the ultimate foil and partner for sean conry
0: absolutely absolutely i just loved her to pieces i mean she's somebody that we've talked about before on the show she was in the hospital yep yep and i feel like there was another one misery she was in misery of course
1: yeah that's right look at her so
0: yeah she's she's great and i man i just have fun watching her on screen she plays that kind of uh that just cynical sort of person so well and the relationship that she has and just the attitude she has about being the doctor. I mean, she's just such a grumpy doctor. You know, she, <laughs> you you meet her and she's berating this nurse for getting the thousand slash a hundred wrong on the, on the page. And it, it's just great. And then, and then to see him do the exact same thing to her, I just loved that it starts so antagonistic, and then the way that they kind of grow and this relationship kind of forms as the two of them come together, and then really she becomes the only person that really supports him, and I really liked that.
1: Yeah, I like that they didn't go with a you know with the the young leading lady. You know, I mean, they went with somebody who really had has dramatically more presence than than Hollywood typically does, and uh, and I think she was she was a terrific addition.
0: The only problem that I had with it is that I I did feel that in some way it did dilute a little bit of that man uh the high noon, you know, man left all by himself to his own devices to tr- try to figure out how to stop these guys. I mean, I I really enjoyed her and I enjoyed that she does end up helping him, but so so I mean I enjoyed it in the context of the story, but when I look at it in the aspect of, hey, this is a High Noon remake, that to me is like, well, they kind of messed that up because I don't feel that quite as much. He's not alone.
1: Well, I, I guess I sort of disagree because in High Noon, he's not really alone. He has Grace Kelly, and I feel like they needed somebody to scratch the metaphorical face if they're going to do that kind of a thing. I mean, he had Cooper had an assistant in in Grace Kelly in High Noon, and well, that, he to did, me is the he... role that, that Francis plays.
0: I guess the difference for me is that he didn't know that that he had Grace Kelly. He thought he was going into it all alone. And essentially he did until the the gunfire started. And then she kind of came to his aid. This one, I mean, he he knew that she was was helping him. So he he never really felt alone. That's that's, that's my sense of it.
1: All right. I'll give you one point for that. (laughs) All right. James Seeking.
0: He's Doogie's dad. He's Doogie's dad. Oh,
1: Andy, he's Doogie's dad. I've been dying to place that. Glad I could help. He's totally Doogie's dad.
0: That is where I know him from. Oh, so good. He was on Hill Street Blues. I mean, he has been around for just forever doing lots of stuff. And actually, he is quite the Peter Himes regular. I think that he's... Been in uh, gosh, Capricorn One, this, The Star Chamber, and Narrow Margin. I think the two of them have worked together on all those films.
1: Goodness, he was in General Hospital in 1963. Note to self, General Hospital's been on since before 1960. These soap operas are bananas, uh,
0: 73, I believe, right? Or was he, did he start in 73?
1: Well, the, so he, the show started in 63.
0: Right. He was on 73 to 76. All right. All right. There you go. That's, uh, that's, just, that's why was your, I was confused by your... I like, well, I see 73 here, but then I realized that was his, yeah, his that term. Yeah, was,
1: that was his... Uh, you're right. I didn't even look at that. I was just really focused on the fact that, holy cow, 1963, General Hospital. Oh, yeah. That is crazy. I still haven't been able to beat the Luke and Laura storyline. <laughs> I'm sorry, what? <laughs> <laughs> Uh Kika Markham uh, plays the wife. Uh we don't see her very often, uh very much. Uh but you know, she she abandoned Sean Connery. What are you gonna do? You'll have uh, no
0: friends at this table, Kika. That was that was that was rough.
1: Yeah. yeah. Uh the big uh, surprise foil at the end is Clark Peters. Uh he, he takes over as the sergeant when uh, uh James Seeking is, is um uh, uh is done for. And, uh, and he uh, is the, he's the guy who puts on a suit and he chases him and they have the punch off on the grid, the slow motion punch off in space suits.
0: Uh. (laughs) You know, I, I loved the moment where he's like grinding, uh, Connery's head up against the panel and like the sparks are shooting everywhere. Yeah. I just wish that there was a little more to that. Like something about kind of the sparks and everything. I was like, gosh, that seems so cool. Um, I wish that it was like shorting his suit out or I yeah. wish that they had that actually integrated that into the fight a little more than they did.
1: Yeah, it was a visual that was cool, but there was no sense of threat because it was a helmet. Right. Like it, right, exactly. it was not causing him pain. Right. So I didn't get that. I, I felt like they didn't sell that very well and that was just uh, sort of my problem with the final fight. I think it was that that's the the weak part of the film uh, of an otherwise fantastic film. But uh he's I really like the way he plays it and it's a little maybe a little too obvious when he's he's grilling Francis Stern and says, "Well, where is he?" Where? Right. No, oh, really. Is,
0: where is he outside? Yeah. Right. <laughs> that that was if there's any problems I have it's it's some of the foreshadowing of the script are yeah. just it's it's pretty blatant. It's, it's like <laughs>
1: Pretty blatant, that's true. Yeah. Uh the sequence that I am I'm most thrilled with, though, of of all of them, you know, you take get get rid of the get foreshadowing, get rid of the fight in the greenhouse, it's the Steven Burkoff uh, scene. He has gone bananas from the, the drugs, and he's taken a prostitute hostage, and he is so wired uh in this. He's just riveting.
0: You're just you're just thrilled that your boy from Under the Cherry Moon is back in action.
1: Why do you of course I am? But you say it with just such disdain.
0: (laughs) No, he's great here. I actually really (laughs) like Steve Burkoff. This, you know, he plays such, uh, such mean characters. I mean, he does it so well. And he does it really well here. I mean, he's really kind of scary here. He's so scary. Not a guy I want to run into on a street corner at dark.
1: No. Uh I John Ratzenberger also uh in in the film as Tarlow. Uh obviously John Ratzenberger we we know from Cheers uh, as Cliff Clavin. He was also in uh the the um Toy Story films.
0: Every Pixar movie.
1: Well, oh, he actually yes, he's every Pixar movie.
0: Uh, and he gets his head blown up here. You're certainly yeah. not going to see that in a Pixar movie. No, <laughs> no, you
1: don't. I want to see that so badly in a Pixar movie. Do you? <laughs> yeah, that would be great. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. I want, I, actually I would like Pixar to helm a remake of Outland. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. Oh, uh, anyway, my. so wow. that's the that's anybody else in the cast that, that you enjoyed seeing particularly?
0: You know, the only other one that I was gonna bring up was uh uh the voice that we hear when uh when um uh Peter Boyle's character uh, shepherd when he calls to bring in the troops to take O'Neill out, do you know who does the voice for that that he's talking to?
1: Um, I'm... No, I don't.
0: It is uh, Charles Chaffee, who we talked about way back on our Clute episode. He is the guy who played Peter Cable, the bad guy.
1: No kidding.
0: It is true.
1: No, I didn't know that. I would not have picked that out. It's not a voice that I, I recognize
0: easily. No, I, I didn't either, but <laughs> trivia, man. Trivia.
1: Nice. nice. Uh, this is another Jay, your favorite Jay for the music.
0: Good old Jerry Goldsmith. Yeah, we've talked about him uh, a few times recently. I I love what Jerry Goldsmith does here. This really kind of feels um, almost like a sister score to what he did in Alien. Absolutely. He, he creates that just very dissonant uh, sense that really kind of fits so perfectly for this type of sci-fi film.
1: It is. This is one of those that, that, I mean, it's, it's great sort of a tonal sound layer. Um, it is one of those scores that is inseparable from the film.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I, uh, I don't know if I had heard much of the score. I may have heard like the theme, um, but that may have been it. And then, uh, and then I watched it and I mean, it's, it's, completely identifiable as Jerry Goldsmith's score. I, yes. I could just hear instantly that it was him. But um, just the way that he he paces the chase scenes um, and the investigative scenes and everything, I mean, it just it works really well in context of the film. Uh,
1: and yet, they apparently didn't have a credits editor.
0: <laughs> wow. <laughs> no, they didn't. Not just the credits, but just like the uh, all of the uh, on-screen text. I mean, I was really blown away by the uh, the typos that kept popping up in yeah. here. <laughs>
1: oh, it's pretty good. I uh, I didn't notice all of them. Uh, I I did pick up uh, principal. Uh, you said dependent. It was misspelled a few yeah. times. Anything else that jumped out at you?
0: There were others, yeah. Yeah. but um, I but you I wasn't writing them down, and so uh, yeah, I missed them. But um, it's just. I don't know. I feel like that's one of those embarrassing things that it's like when you go to a restaurant and they have the 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 guy who paints in the in the windows like their whatever their special is that they're doing and they <laughs> misspell a word. It's like how did somebody not catch that in the process of of bringing that to fruition? There I always think okay, somebody inevitably is going to know how to spell the word right. So let's have them just make sure <laughs> somebody uh, please. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's the worst when you see it like on a chalk menu, because you know it's written in chalk. Yes. And what that means is nobody can spell or nobody is reading it because nobody has
0: fixed it. Chalk menus I, are the worst. When I see chalk menus, especially the ones that are in reach, the thing you, that I like you about fix those them? is I always try to like, if, <laughs> if <laughs> those do. chalks are, I'm that guy who's always trying to fix the chalk menus. You're
1: an activist menu editor. <laughs> That's what you do. Here, here. You know who probably doesn't need an editor? Who's that? Alan Dean Foster. <laughs> what do you think about that? He writes in beast mode. He needs he is, no editor.
0: He is a writing fool. That man cranks him out.
1: We just talked about him uh, briefly with the... Yeah, what was it? It was, was, it was the Star, Star Wars War? The Force yeah, Awakens adaptation. Right. Uh, and he also wrote the adaptation for this, Outland. You can go read it. My goodness. Does that guy cornered the market
0: he has done so many novelizations uh, i mean just looking at the standalone novelizations i mean starting back in 74 with dark star which yeah. is uh you know john carpenter's student film ostensibly uh black hole clash of the titans outland the thing Kroll, the last starfighter shadowkeep starman pale rider that's an interesting novelization for him <laughs> chronicles of riddick I mean, yeah, he is. Uh, I mean, and then of course he's done like the Transformers uh, movies, Terminator, Aliens. I mean, it's t- tons of Star Trek. It's crazy. This I love man it. is so busy,
1: so busy. I love that he has he he has a thing. He's got a market.
0: Yes, he does. We should
1: have markets. <laughs>
0: <laughs> We're working on it. Andy, how did it do? This film did okay. It it didn't. Uh, you know. It didn't break box office records or anything, but uh, you know it did all right for itself. It cost sixteen million, is what I found in uh, nineteen eighty-one dollars, which is about uh, almost forty-one million today. Um, it ended up making domestically about twenty million, so about fifty-one point two in today's dollars. So you know it made just enough to get by. Um, adjusted, that's about ninety-three thousand dollars per finished minute in today's dollars.
1: Not bad, and i I think that it is enough to say this movie is underappreciated, and you probably haven't seen it, so you should go see it that's my that's my pitch
0: here here, and as somebody who's never seen it before, I've got to say I'm so glad to have watched it and discovered this little uh, bit of sci-fi joy
1: oh oh oh,'m my heart is warm <laughs> Let's flick chart it, shall we? Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel, and you can see our list of movies, and uh, this is what we're going to do. We're going to pick this one. We're going to rank it against all the other movies that we have done, and I think it's going to break the top 100. That's my pitch. I think it is.
0: That means it has to pass the first one, Pete. Uh Uh-huh.
1: What is the first one?
0: (laughs) Outland or Oh, Brother, Where Art Thou? (laughs) Crap. I know. This is why it gets hard. I gotta say, oh brother, art though? I'm sorry. I feel bad because I really did enjoy Outland.
1: I feel like you just—that's the first shovelful of dirt that you are putting <laughs> on the on its grave. Wow, you can challenge me. No, I can't in good conscience challenge you, Andy. I too will pick, oh brother.
0: All right, Outland or the Sandlot. Outland. Now here, I will go with Outland. Yes. Outland or The Roaring Twenties? Outland. Definitely Outland. Outland or A League of Their Own? Outland. You know, here I'll do A League of Their Own. Hmm.
1: There's literally no crying in space. <laughs> there was no crying. Your head just explodes. Your <laughs> head just
0: explodes. It's like your body cries, one For big <laughs> blob of blood.
1: <laughs> For fun, I will challenge you on this, Andy. I think Outland should be uh, ranked higher than a league of their own. Here we go. All right, ready? One, one two, three, paper.
0: paper. All right. One, one two, two, three, three scissors. Rocks. Oh, sorry, man. All right.
1: You know, you do what you got to do.
0: I do what I got to do. Outland or Syriana? Uh, Outland. I'm I'm, going to do Syriana.
1: Sorry. Okay. (laughs) Are you ready? Uh Uh-huh. One, One, two, two, three. three. Scissors. Oh, crying (laughs) out loud.
0: I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Outland or the deer hunter?
1: (sighs) I just, 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 the deer hunter's tough
0: to watch. It is tough to watch. It is really... It is a, a, so a feat good. of strength to watch that one. It is so really strong. Hard
1: to watch. I'm going to go with Outland.
0: I am too. Even though Deer Hunter is the better film, I think. Outland or The Verdict? Oh, Outland. I really liked The Verdict, but I'm going to pick Outland. And uh, Outland, Pete, or... Field of dreams.
1: Outland.
0: Outland, outland, outland. Outland. Okay.
1: One one. Two two, three three. Outland. (laughs) Outland crushes rock. Okay, okay,
0: okay. I'll I'll give it to you. Actually, I'm just I'm feeling like I'm feeling very generous. I'm gonna give you Outland. Is it are you
1: feeling generous because you've beat me at every turn? Yes. Okay.
0: All right, that puts it at 135, so it didn't quite crack the top 100, but, you know, we've talked about a lot of movies on this podcast, and, uh, you know, it's still, it's almost in the top 50%.
1: Man, I wish I could grade people that way in my classes. You're almost (laughs) in the top 50%. Still great. Wink. (laughs) Wink. (laughs) oh well all right what are you going to do how's this do for your star rating so curious
0: this is uh, you know it's a tricky one because I actually like this more than high noon which I rated four stars last week I feel like this is a three and a half right now for me which is weird because I actually like it more than high noon now
1: you uh, that should I'm going to give it a four and a half stars
0: I think I, I, I feel obligated to bump it to four because of that so I'm giving it a four so you're at four and a half yes all right, there you go.
1: So, do we do quarter stars? Is that how it works? Well,
0: it's four point two five, which will round up to four and a half.
1: I love rounding up. I feel it's, like it's, I lost a lot, but I I still ended up a winner. Andy, thanks. You
0: did. That's good. It's good. Letterbox
1: Letterbox com slash the next reel. Check out our profile over there and our lists and how, how just just a lot of joy. There's a lot of letterboxed joy over there and now uh andy where do we go from here we're moving into a new uh, original for our originals and their remakes series
0: we are this is going to be um i'm looking forward to this one neither of us have seen infernal affairs and uh so we're going to watch that and follow it up with its remake martin scorsese's the departed
1: fantastic i i haven't seen infernal affairs but i really am looking forward to seeing the departed again
0: I, yeah, me too. And I'm really curious to see kind of the comparison between these two. And uh, it's interesting that Infernal Affairs, I think, spurred two sequels, I believe. And uh, I mean, I don't think I've ever heard of any plans for kind of following suit with The Departed, but that would be an interesting way to go.
1: Totally. Absolutely. Well, this is going to be a- another good pairing. And uh, until then, I got to go to bed.
0: All right. I'm gonna go put on my handy dandy neck protector and go poke around in a meat locker looking for drugs hidden in the frozen beef.
1: Um you know, we're relegated to the two stars, Andy. Did you see this? Nobody likes Mm -hmm. the transfer. The DVD is terrible. Blu-ray is much better. I got mine on iTunes. It's beautiful. But apparently, everybody who got the DVD left one star on Amazon. Nobody left a one star that was legitimately about the film uh, on Amazon. So I begin with a two star by a customer entitled Slow, Slow, Slow. I wanted to like this movie so much. I love Sean Connery. I love outer space epics. I love Lone Man Against Hired Guns movies. I hated this movie. I couldn't believe how phenomenally slow this movie was. The dialogue was just very mundane. I can't remember a single scene that stands out as good. It almost felt like you were watching a small group of really dumb people trying to think of something to say about a topic they neither knew nor cared about every time two people ended up speaking to one another. The big finale with the mercenaries showing up to kill the sheriff was just a non-event. Can't people think of a cool way to kill bad guys in the future? Nothing in this movie clicked for me. And I really tried to let it work. If I was given this DVD, I'd never unwrap it.: Ouch. Yeah., yeah.
0: Can't another think one of of the novel way to kill people. people in the future. I mean, come on, blowing them out of the, out of the hatch. I thought that was great.:
1: Heads exploded <laughs> multiple times in this movie. I think they didn't see this movie. That's yeah. what I'm saying.:
0: Well, I ended up with a three-star by Michael Clavelli, who says pretty good cop story in a sci-fi setting. It's unusual seeing Sean Connery in a film this old where he isn't a dashing undercover agent, but he's pretty good in it. On the whole, it's not a bad movie. It ju- it's just that it doesn't sci-fi well. <laughs> you can take all the elements of the story and set it in an urban setting and it's pretty much, it'd pretty much work the same way. Yeah, it takes place in space, but it's not that like people are being used as pods to farm alien life forms or that machines are becoming so sentient that they're hypnotizing workers to kill themselves. Nothing like that, but it's not a bad movie. I think that Michael kind of missed the whole point and the whole idea of having a story like this uh, in space. I mean, it can be anywhere, but the fact that it's in space, I think, is what gives it uh, those intriguing elements that make it uh, work so well.
1: Hypnosis robots are so played. Yeah.
0: Been there, done that.
1: (laughs) Thanks, Amazon.